Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Africa Whisperer, telling authentic African stories in a global way. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer. We did a lot of trial and error mm-hmm. and started off with tomatoes. So we went from the greenhouse to like the field and we grew like acres of tomatoes. And, you know, we had big dreams about what we're going to do with the tomatoes and we harvest them and we'd harvest take it to the market and this is when the next realization hits you it's like oh this is not actually controlled by you or the market prices you know in quotes it's controlled by the traders because these guys come in from let's say kampala and they basically dictate the price they're like we're buying 50 kilos at 10 dollars today or 30 kilos at 20 dollars tomorrow you know it, it it fluctuates and for the average farmer in like in you know rural settings where, where they had to ride their bike you know carrying this bag of tomatoes get to the farm it's like a two-hour ride they don't have the option to just get rid of that you know at the, at the price they they literally have to sell at the price that mm. is being dictated to them at mm. the market on this episode of the africa whisperer i spoke to eric kaduru who started his journey in advertising then made a dramatic switch to farming filled with twists and turns he started as a google farmer but quickly learned that perhaps everything you read online doesn't necessarily translate practically still Eric, with his wife, Rebecca, pushed along and started as tomato farmers, then moved to passion fruit. Uganda is home to almost 50% of East Africa's arable land and is often described as the food basket of East Africa. Though most farming is sustenance farming, there are opportunities for young people to make a business out of farming. Eric and Rebecca founded CAD Africa, which envisions a world where young women have financial independence and are economic drivers in their communities. Here is how our conversation went. I'm really just so excited to get to speak to you um, on the Africa Whisperer. Thank you for making time. Uh, you know, people who listen to this podcast love to listen to inspiring stories and people who are doing awesome things in Africa and building things from the ground up. And I feel that CAD Africa and what you and your wife are doing are perfect. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you for having us. It's, it's always a pleasure to be able to like share our experience and our stories with with anyone who wants to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> now, Eric, let's before we get into farming and and all of the awesome things that you're doing, um, you and your family's doing with CAD Africa as well. Let's talk a bit about your background, right? Because you were born in Kenya and you grew up in Kenya. So I want to know what your mm-hmm. life was like in Kenya versus the time that you would spend in Uganda for holidays. Like, paint a picture of what that was like. What you enjoyed about being in Kenya versus being in Uganda, and vice versa. Yeah, I was born in Kenya. And we actually moved to Uganda in the early 90s. As, like, I'm half Ugandan, half Kenyan. So, like, with most of the kids my age during that period who were born in, like, the 80s mm. were outside of Uganda. So we moved to Uganda in the early 90s, and then I ended up going to boarding school in, in Kenya. Yeah. So I spent most of my time in boarding school, which, you know, everyone is always shocked when I say I loved because <laughs> that's, like literally the foundation and uh, because my parents were both um so they both worked for ngos and they were both like lawyers and they traveled a lot yeah 
Yeah. They wanted us to be in like a constant place. So it's like you're not hopping around and you're not like, if you don't see them, it's because you're in school. Yeah. So I ended up in boarding school where I spent most of my year. Uh, we travel home to Uganda or to Kenya uh, for the holidays. So like summer, Easter, half term, depending on what was happening, we'd, we'd go to, to whichever country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. My My one thing about Uganda that I didn't like was most of my friends were in Kenya. So like during the holidays, <laughs> when I'd go home, I'd be at home with like, there may be six or seven of us. And it was like the same group of friends who have ended up being like my closest friends, you know, throughout life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, holidays were spent, you know, doing what us kids did was, you know, riding bikes. They let you out the house in the morning, you come back, have lunch, you go back and you have, you have to be home for dinner. And that was it. <laughs> it. It was a different world. And then video games came into play and, and movies kind of like took over my social life. So like my holidays were spent watching a lot of movies as I got into my teenagers before I could drive. Yeah. And obviously, as soon as I started driving, the, the priorities shifted. <laughs> <laughs> you like the priorities shifted. <laughs> yeah. But generally, it was, it was good, you know, yeah. good times. Just being in Kenya and being in boarding school and so forth, because that's the story of a lot of people, you know, specifically when you when you talk about uh, a lot of people who were born in the 80s in Uganda ended up living outside of Uganda, obviously because of the political situation and uncertainty and all of that. Was there anything that you feel that you learned that you got from boarding school? Because it's not something that many people go to boarding school. Like if you're in South Africa, for example, to go to boarding school, you are technically really privileged. You know, it's the same as in the West. If you're going to boarding school, that's like private school it's like incredible was that the same dynamic for you you know it's funny because i never thought about it like that Mm. until people started pointing it out Mm. and then you know like you then realize oh okay this is kind of a privilege and it was it was it was good i i enjoyed the experience and the few things that i picked from that experience were i think one thing my wife always mentions is i probably developed ocd in boarding school because (laughs) routines were built and they're like embedded into your system so it's like you know you wake up you make your bed your laundry is folded you put it in a certain place you have an allocated locker so you have to keep it tidy and obviously this is not across the board for everyone because i do have i did have friends who are like slobby Mm. Uh, but for me it it like translated into this very organized way of, of, of operation. And it, it, it comes all the way till today. I'm still like militant about how clean I keep the place, where yeah. things are, are, are placed. Um, my wife used to hate when, when we first met, I'd be like, uh, can you fold the laundry and put in the <laughs> dirty laundry hamper before it goes into the wash? And she'd be like, that's crazy. Why are you, <laughs> why why are you folding you fold dirty laundry? Throw it into? Yeah. And I'm like, it's just a routine. Cause yeah. you know, us guys would, you come in from let's say games or whatever, and there were piles of laundry where you'd put your, your dirty stuff. So you'd fold your shirts, you'd fold your shorts, you'd fold your socks, or you'd roll up your socks and put them in these piles. And mm. that, that system was just like built into me. Mm. And I guess it, it, it translated to everything else. So yeah, I, I feel like I'm pretty organized and I'm like very time conscious. And I try and like stick to a routine. And yeah. once I get into a routine, it's very hard to break. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, 
I can imagine I can imagine that that's helped a lot I'm um, in terms of what you're doing in in farming and everything having a routine and being very disciplined and and all of that it's probably played quite a huge role yeah 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 it definitely does you know the early morning shifts are the most crucial part of like when you're farming so you have mm-hmm. to be at the farm early mm-hmm. and by like midday people are starting to to relax and if you don't take advantage of those like blocks of time then mm-hmm. you can lose out quite dramatically mm-hmm. however it does have its you know its bad side because you become so fixated on like a system and then with agriculture for instance it, there's too much unpredictable what's the word yeah that word just flew out of my unpredictability. mouth unpredictability unpredictability that's the yeah. one yeah. <laughs> so like when something happens and it's out of your 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 realm of control it becomes a real problem so you have to like adjust to that yeah. and yeah so like looking at the weather you know what google says the weather is going to be today you're like okay it's going to be raining and then yeah. it doesn't rain and it's like oh my god the world's ending yeah <laughs> but i i want to find out right um just in terms of going into farming and so forth cuz before that you were in advertising cuz you were in south africa so i'm kind of curious for farming where that interest peaked for you um if you're the first person in your fa- in your family to be a farmer uh yeah just talk to us about that and you know when you make the decision okay i'm going to start farming like how does that all happen actually it's a funny story because you think about farming as something that you know people are doing in rural communities and yeah. poor people and mm. i also had that that perspective mm. until later in high school my roommate was mm. from a farming family and in Kenya it's like it's big people do like commercial farming and i hadn't even put two and two together until i went to visit him and mm. then i i realized the scope of like what these guys are doing this is like mm. commercial farming mm. is a completely different animal to someone like growing beans for the household and that was kind of like motivational and me changing my mindset mm. as to what could be achieved and being from like Kenya growing up in Kenya and living in Uganda and being half Ugandan and looking at how agriculture is viewed in Uganda it made me like shift my perspective so I'm like okay perhaps we're not doing it the same way they're doing it on that side and we can shift it and and start changing the narrative on our side mm-hmm. and that that's what kind of like triggered that ambition or that that sparked the initiative to like get into agriculture mm-hmm. well that and and hating the fact that I had to drive I had to spend like 4 hours a day in traffic to get to my job and get home after work and it was just you've been to Kampala you know how it Yeah is. oh my gosh when, yeah, when yeah. people complain about traffic anywhere else I'm like yo you don't know until you've experienced Kampala like. you have not experienced it seriously Ex- exactly yeah cuz so, yeah no road rules exist at all traffic lights yeah. they don't they're an option <laughs> free for all <laughs> exactly exactly so now how did you actually get into farming i know a little bit about the story but i prefer if you share it how you got into farming i believe that your dad unfortunately had passed mm-hmm. away and so forth and he left your family around 27 acres of land is this correct yeah that okay. is correct yeah and my wife and i had met maybe a year before that and we decided So we were in Nairobi actually and we were mm. sitting at this um this restaurant art cafe and they had this magazine on and I think the front page had an article or like a section on like vanilla farming and it was just talking about you know how you can generate wealth and everything and where I'm from in Uganda in Port Portal in western Uganda had one of the biggest vanilla plantations and it's owned by 
who is now uh, a family that is now friends of ours, mm-hmm. Dali Lodge, and they have a, this vanilla plantation. Those guys are like, wait, what? They're making this much? You could grow vanilla in Fort Portal? Wait a minute, I have land in Fort Portal. Let's go yeah. to Fort Portal and grow vanilla. Yeah. And obviously, that was the spark. And we're like, okay, we're going to grow vanilla. And you get there, and then you realize, ah, it's not as simple as just you plant <laughs> yeah. the vanilla and it, it grows. It takes like four years before you start seeing the fruits of your labor. And we're like, okay, let's look into other, other crops. And um, I think we came across this company called um, Balton. And they were mm-hmm. selling greenhouses and marketing it in the sense that you buy the greenhouse, they provide you the seedling, then they link you to the market in Israel that buys the tomatoes or the eggplants. So we bought these greenhouses and started um, a farm. And that quickly led into us realizing that there were layers to this farming thing. <laughs> so first of all, you, you, you can't just be on Google, you know, like, yeah, okay. Because you're a Google farmer. You're a Google farmer, <laughs> yeah. which I think is so fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, initially I was. Yeah. I started off as a Google farmer, and now I tell people, hey, get <laughs> stay clear. Because by the time you like, it's like when you're sick and you see like something growing on your leg, and you're like, oh man, let me Google what this is. Yeah. But if you had felt the pain before and gone to the doctor, who is a professional, and he said, ah, if you don't use this ointment or take this medication, this is going to happen and we'll end up cutting your leg off. Yeah. That's how Google farming works. You only notice it when it's too late. Mm. So it, it led us to be like, okay, quickly, we need to get some professional assistance. And that's when we started looking into like um, getting agronomists to come in and help us with like planning and, you know, season. You have to think carefully about what you're growing because some things don't grow as well. And we did a lot of trial and error mm-hmm. and started off with tomatoes. So we went from the greenhouse to like the field and we grew like acres of tomatoes and you know we had big dreams about what we're going to do with the tomatoes and we harvest them and we'd harvest take it to the market and this is when the next realization hits you it's like oh this is not actually controlled by you or the market wow. prices you know in quotes yeah. it's controlled by the traders because so these guys come in from let's say kampala and they basically dictate the price they're like we're buying 50 kilos at $10 today mm. or mm. 30 kilos at $20 tomorrow. You know, it, it, it fluctuates. And for the average farmer in, like, in you know, rural settings where, where they had to ride their bike, you know, carrying this bag of tomatoes, get to the farm, it's like a two-hour ride. They don't have the option to just get rid of that, you know, at the, at the price. They, they literally have to sell at the price that mm. is being dictated to them at mm. the market, uh, which for us wasn't the case because we've, you know, ferried this stuff over here in a truck and we're like, you know what, we'll come back tomorrow. But then uh, that tomatoes, you know, they, they go bad pretty fast. So mm. after a while, it was like me and my wife were making chutneys and we became like jam connoisseurs with tomatoes and and, oh, wow. and started thinking, <laughs> thinking so you had to be it. really creative about it yo man it was it was painful you know yeah. to watch because it takes like four or five months for these things to grow mm. you have big plans you know what the market price is you, you literally you've planned your whole life you know my mm. my next six months are planned because i'll sell this many kilos I'll get this much, and then that changes overnight mm. so it led us to like looking at different crops that had like longer shelf life mm. and which would allow us to be like you know if the market price isn't right today we can adjust and come back 
tomorrow or make that negotiation. And we landed on passion fruit. And, yeah. and that's, you know, basically where CAD Africa originated is through that experience of loss with mm. the tomatoes to like finding something that has more shelf life and grows pretty well in that region as well. Mm. And so we started doing that. And that is the beginning of the second half of this journey. With passion fruit, what was the difference with it? Um, you know, was that easier? And what, what, you know, when it comes to grading it internationally versus locally, is there a difference with, with that? The first thing was it takes six months to grow. So it's a pretty quick turnaround on the, on the plant. And then once it gets to that level of, you know, maturity, it's a continuous. So it's like seasonal. So mm. the vines will stay on for two to three years, depending on how you treat them. And so in the rainy season, it's basically growing. Dry season, you're harvesting, you're selling. Mm. They last, depending on the variety and how you keep them, up to a month, mm. the shelf life of, of passion fruit. They, you know, they'll shrivel and start looking very unattractive, but they're still good. Yeah. And um, they also are easier to transport because they have the hard shell, so they don't like, like tomatoes in a truck from Fort Porto to Kampala. Mm. You get a few bumps on the way down, it's you're going to get some, you know, tomato sauce in the back of the truck. <laughs> yeah. But with, with passion, it's not the same. And then they also have um, an international market. So, like, you could export to the UK, to mm. Europe. The States mm. was trickier because they have, like, FDA regulations on certain things that come in. Mm. But, um, yeah. And then, so that's what made us decide, okay, let's try this. Mm. And, you know, passion food, like, as a Ugandan, it's mm. just there. It's, it's something yeah. that, you know, like you wake up in the morning, there's passion fruit juice at the house. Listen. The people selling it on the streets, it grows in the it's backyard. Everywhere. You know what I mean? But then I saw like in an interview, you mentioned about how something like 68% of the passion fruit that is consumed in Uganda is not from Uganda. And I thought, this whole thing is so strange. I don't, I didn't really understand how that all worked um, or if maybe I misunderstood that stat. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. So this is the kind of stuff that we were like uncovering while we're going down this, this journey. And you start to realize, because in my mind as well, the same way you're thinking is like, okay, this stuff is growing on the trees. Everyone's eating it. It's always available. This must be something that is generally grown here. And you don't realize that people are exporting it from like, let's say, neighboring countries because no one is growing it commercially mm. in Uganda. Because it's also, it's quite a technical crop to grow so like there's a lot of learning in in that process and mm. i think in the early 90s uganda had especially in the western region had a high like market for for passion fruit and they were growing it at a, at a large scale mm. but you know there are certain diseases that can come in and literally wipe out the entire plantation wow. and i feel like that kind of deterred people from growing it Mm. Because you'd have like three acres of passion fruit, you're doing really well, and then you get woodiness virus, and boom, everything's gone. Mm. So it was one of those things of like we have to start figuring out how to do it better. Obviously, the the variety of seed had changed mm. since the early '90s. There were seeds that were you know more prevalent to like growing in certain weather. They would avoid certain diseases, but woodiness is like you know that it's that terminal illness that if you mm. get it with passion fruit you just literally have to count your losses so yeah we're trying to change the mindset of people in that region to start growing that instead of, instead of growing like maize or tea which they were doing mm. was an uphill struggle mm. but eventually after they started seeing us doing it with with multiple farmers 
Mm. It became something that they were interested in. Now, just with regards to changing the mindset, like what I love is, you know, just, just this idea, because we are sitting in a time in the world where we all have to be thinking about things differently, you know. And I, I think mm-hmm. I, I heard a quote, um, you know, when you listen to a lot of like talks and you hear all these interviews and so forth, where somebody said that the next um, generation of millionaires and billionaires will come from um, in Africa will come from agriculture. And I thought... That's so interesting, you know, like I didn't actually think about that because, you know, you, you think of the creative sector that's doing really well. We're seeing how our artists yeah. are doing well. The tech sector, specifically in fintech and so forth, are doing is doing extremely well in changing the narrative, specifically with like young Africans and, you know, and, and, and all of that. And then you've also got um, entrepreneurship. And that's all amazing. Being in agriculture and farming, actually, as a business, because you mentioned something that's so that's so interesting about how in Uganda people generally farm for sus- for sustenance because yeah. I'm not a farmer. I never actually correlated to the fact that mm, maybe that there could be business made out of this so can you talk us through that whole uh, mentality shift initially what we saw was um so as we started growing the passion fruit in our area where, where my farm is um a lot of the, the people who worked on our farm were women mm. and the women would come to us and be like hey listen instead of paying me my full salary this month can you pay me half and then use the other half to pay my kids school fees mm. and you know things like that because they'd go home and their husbands would end up taking uh, the, the profits and spending them on drinking or not mm. just misusing the money mm. so what we started doing is like okay let's give you guys seedling you take it home you grow it bring it back to us when it's ready and we'll we'll bulk buy everything pay you the you know the average price mm. and and then create this system where it's like we're growing an out, outgrowing network and that was the first step in like shifting that mindset because the women who are doing it who take it home it doesn't take a lot of land to grow passion food so like mm. within your subsistence farm whatever you're growing your beans because passion food grows vertically, mm. still allows them to like grow the, the produce that they consume in the household on the ground. So your beans, your potatoes, your cabbage, whatever else you, you want. Mm. And then the passion food becomes your cash crop to then mm. sell as a, something to profit from. Mm. And it started off with a few women from our farm and then started like trickling down into the community. And then more people started to get interested because they knew that if they grew it, there was a market for it. So similar mm-hmm. to like the tea estates in the area where everyone was growing small small plots of tea, which takes like two years to get to a point of fruition. And it take, you, you're not getting the money you deserve for the, little, the, the effort that you take to grow it. The amount of detrimentation it does to your land, like it, you can't really grow anything after you for like at least two years after you uproot the tea. So you, they couldn't use their land for their own personal land for, for growing produce for the house and the tea. So mm. this started to shift their mindset. So they're like, okay, I could actually grow stuff for my house, grow this for, for the business mm. and sell it and make money while still feeding my kids. Mm. And that was the first step in like shifting the mindset. Mm. And, and as we saw this, you know, happening with, with women in the, in the area, we were approached by one of the, the churches near, near our, our farm. And it's, I think it was a Catholic church at the time. And they were like, hey, listen, we have all this land. Mm. There are all these women in this community who don't have, you know, roles. They don't have work. They don't have things to do during the day. They don't own land. Mm. Is there a way we could have some sort of program where we use their land to, like, grow our outgo system? So, like, yes, that sounds like a great idea. So Mm. we'll lease plots of land from the Catholic Church, get women from within the community, and, like, 
go into like a group, like a VSLA or a savings group. So we're teaching them how to grow as a unit. And mm. from that is where the, the, the nonprofit aspect of like Cad Africa mm. started to develop. Mm. So we started to think about how we could, could scale that. And as you interact with the women on a daily basis and they start to see the initiative turning into like a business for them, Mm. where they have a fixed place to sell their produce, mm. they start like thinking about other things that could be incorporated into their their, their group. Mm. So we started doing like financial literacy training, started doing uh, health and high, health and sexual reproductive training, mm. uh, we introduced advocacy classes. And over a period of like five years, we were able to develop uh, a curriculum that is called the CAD Africa Experience. Mm-hmm. which basically integrates women into these cooperatives. They go through this curriculum over a 12-month period. As we're introducing agriculture as the main income-generating aspect for the business. Mm-hmm. And from, from that interaction with the Catholic Church, obviously the, the Protestant Church on the other side is like, hey, we want some <laughs> of that action. <laughs> and then it went from the churches to the mosques to individual mm-hmm. landowners to like people who were just interested in like utilizing land that they had to help their community. This is awesome. So literally, what yeah. you would, what you would do, what you what you're doing at Cat Africa, you literally set the entire community on fire. Obviously, not on actual fire because we want <laughs> fire. But you set everything on fire. I think that that's so. That's so. It's just really so inspiring to be able to be working um, with with an NGO and you know doing that kind of work that is bringing like actual change that people in the community can see and they all want to be able to jump on and, and play their part. So congratulations to you guys. That's fantastic. No, thank you. Thank you. And it was all about that, you know, because like you see a lot of uh, NGO programs that come in, implement something and then they leave mm-hmm. and it's not developing that, you know, self-sustainable ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And this is what we were trying to tackle. And mm-hmm. it's not perfect, but it, it creates this idea that, okay, if you link the private sector to the development sector, mm-hmm. that's the only way you can like continue this change. So where people are now like, the program ends, you leave, but the community stays engaged in what they do. And I think the tier states, the, the cocoa farmers have like figured that out. Mm. And they've been doing that for, for years. And it's something that we're just like trying to replicate, mm. but allowing smallholder farmers who don't have a lot of land, who don't have, you know, the 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 option to like just give away their two acres to tea because that's the only way you start making enough mm-hmm. money to like put your kids to school. Mm-hmm. But on like half an acre of passion fruit, you're making double the money yeah, and it's continuous and it allows you to continue doing what you need to be doing your family. I really also love that this entire story is driven by the woman in the community. I often think, because um, I'm, I'm based in Ghana at the moment, and uh, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a market called Makola Market, and you know, in every African like country and everything, like in city, there's like a market, you know, that's where everything is gotten from. And I often yeah. think to myself that if the woman decide not to work, in certain African, in many African countries, oh. the economies are shutting down, but, shutting, but down. shutting down totally because women basically all of those quote unquote um, informal sectors that people may think are informal, they actually aren't. Those are the driving force of the economy. So yeah. to be able to see this happening in Uganda, and we know you know in Uganda about how, for example, land is not passed on to women or or, or girls yeah. are not always educated. So I think that it's so powerful um, for you uh, to be able to be doing this kind of work. But now 
with that, because you had mentioned about how perhaps um, if the woman, you know, because it can be a little bit conservative. So you didn't find a situation where perhaps the parents or I mean, not the parents, but like the, the elders in the family or the husbands and everything were not happy about the situation. Or how did you get everybody in the family on board for these women to yeah. basically be self, self-employed, basically? So that's actually a very good question. And absolutely, we did face that hurdle. And so what we did is as we were developing the curriculum, we like brought in, you know, specialists who can help us, you know, view certain things from angles that we couldn't particularly see. Mm. And one of those things was like the gender dynamics, the household dynamics that happened mm. after like women start getting empowered and start making money and their husbands, their, their fathers, their spouses they are starting to wonder what are these people doing? Mm. So we incorporated into our program, we have like uh, three events during the 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 program so we'd have the launch of the farm Mm -hmm. where we'd invite the family members so everyone is invited parents um, siblings husbands everyone's invited to that that ceremony we explain what the program's about we introduce the the program we provide like branded t-shirts to like show that this is where your wives are this is what they're doing this is what they're learning and then we'd like this is basically called the the family farm day and we provide seedling to the the families as well. So like mm. seedling is now going directly to the families from the, the company to create an outgrowth system for the families to be involved in. So not only are the women like making money off the farm that they're working together as a cooperative on, they're now taking the knowledge they have from this program back to their households, taking seedling to their fa- their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, and mm. having them get involved in growing it. Mm. So that the income is now being doubled on both sides. So mm. when the family starts harvesting, they can sell to the company as well. Mm. And that way, everyone is like in, entrenched in the system where like we're all working together for the same cause. Mm. So now you're, you're doubling the income in the household. You're involving the family directly. And they start to see the benefits of the program. And that kind of like shifts the, the dynamics between the wife and the husband or the father because he understands what's coming from this program. Mm. And, and you know, we did a lot of, like, gender transformation, you know, programs where, we're like, we in, engage with, with the youth, with the boys in these communities to see how we can help them address certain issues. Because one thing that started happening is, like, because we were so focused on working with women in the communities, everyone would be like, what about the boys? What about the boys? And unfortunately, wow. the boys do get enough attention already. Yeah. They're already going to inherit the land. But yeah. then to make this thing like work for everyone, you have to like make sure that they are also like engaged with. Mm. So we developed the curriculum for the boys to like to sensitize them to like you know gender issues, to sensitize mm. them on like uh, GBV, and making sure that 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 ecosystem is like helping everyone in that community grow. And mm. yeah, so that that was one of the tactics. But yeah. uh, it was pretty yeah. successful. I've always believed that uh, that solutions for communities should be local solutions. And this is a 100% proof of that, like local so- solutions, communities getting involved. And then you're able to see real change, um, you know, being yeah. driven. So that's that's like, honestly, it's incredible. It's yeah, really incredible. Because no, a lot of times people come in with, with their ideas and mm. thoughts on how things would work or should work and it's not the same because the reality on the ground is completely different if you don't address one thing it shifts the the way the program operates Mm. yeah so 
Nah, it's, it's been it's been interesting. I wanted to just touch on the fact that I felt so I just felt so proud as a Ugandan when you were talking about how land is inherited because you know um that that quote that says the one thing that God is not making any more of is land and just as Ugandans mm-hmm. we're really blessed um you know with the fact that people can still inherit land. <laughs> Yeah. In this day and age, yeah. it's not something you hear. Most of the land is kind of, you know, it, it's not privately owned and that kind of thing. So to find that people even in rural communities or informal communities, they still have land. That is fantastic. And, you know, yeah, it, yeah I think it's just it's just really so awesome. No, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, that mindset shift that happened. Like mm-hmm. you, there's a point in Uganda where people in rural areas, the dream is to move to mm-hmm. the, the city, to Kampala, to mm-hmm to whatever town is next to you so you can like be part of that and i I used to tell guys in the village i'm like listen man people need to eat and Mm. the food comes from here so you Mm. need to realize that you are actually creating something that they need Mm. and once you realize the value of what you're creating and the fact that trucks are coming all the way here to pick it up and if you guys unionize of sorts you know no one likes to hear talk about unions but i think Mm. like for, for agriculture it happens in, in Kenya. They've been very successful with like creating these farmer unions mm. that determine the price, and that's something that's missing in Uganda. Yeah. So the moment that, 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 that the farmers start to realize they actually have the power, we have the thing that these guys want. Yeah. It's like, you know, you don't want to make an analogy to like drug dealers, but drug dealers have drugs, <laughs> yeah. and people come to them to, to buy what they want. So they'll determine the price. Like, so mm. we have the, 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 the crop, they mm. want to buy it, we set the price. Yep. And we determine what happens. And you can like change your own narrative by just being aware and like information is like seriously is power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. So, no. Yeah, no, definitely. I feel like this is, yeah, it's definitely, it's that whole thing of, and I think that Africa as a whole, we have so much power globally, but we don't realize it, you know, because if people are coming to us, we're the ones who should be setting the price, setting the standards, you know, we shouldn't be doing things um, based on the way the rest of the world thinks that we should be doing it, especially when when it comes to trade and and all of that. I think that's that's one thing that I think could make a huge difference just for the continent. If if we just all realize our power and we set, we set our own, um, our own standards. Yeah, and you're yeah. starting to see it, though. You yeah. know, like with the Ghanaian president, I believe he's the one who's like, hey, you guys want to buy our cocoa and go on. Even Rwanda, K- mm. Kagame said something like that. You can't take our thing, take it over there, process it, repackage it, and then bring it back to us and sell it for it like a much like higher price. That makes <laughs> yeah. no sense. So it's time for us to start making that shift. And I think once we, Africa, we're losing good leaders because they have that mindset. They're thinking in that way. You Mm. know, I don't want to say Gaddafi was a a great guy, but he had a vision for Africa that that was quickly extinguished. Yeah. Because, you know, free thinkers often just get labeled as troublemakers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because that's the thing. I feel as though every situation and, and leaders are always complex. Like, I'm definitely going to say that, you know. Um, in Gaddafi, mm-hmm. obviously, there were a lot of faults. But I know of a lot of Africans, including like on my side and everything, where people are like, Gaddafi actually had a vision for what he, the continent could be. So it's always complex. And, you know, we're always like, we have to tiptoe around the issue. But where somebody yeah. has like a vision that could have brought change, you know, we should give credit where it's due, I, I, I think. Absolutely. I think, like, Paul Kagame is the epitome of, like, 
a good leader. Yeah. Like there's everyone has their view of you mm. know. For me, like Lee Kuan Yew is who I always rely on mm. to like the idea of like economic progress before freedoms of personality or whatever. Mm. And he was like Singapore was like one of the most rundown countries. That guy came in and it was harsh what they did in the first like twenty years. But where they are now is what I see happening in Rwanda, where it's like, okay, people don't have the right to speak on this and that, but But, we're fixing the country. We're getting to a point. Like, you go to Rwanda now, like, Rwanda is like one of my favorite countries in the world. And I'm not Rwandese, so I I can't speak on the experience that the average Rwandan has. Mm. But when I go there, I'm like, man, these guys are onto something. Onto something. Yeah. But I don't know how we got to politics. (laughs) I know, right? But this is the African thing. I'm telling you, I tell people that every time people get into conversations, everything in Africa is like social, political. We're like, yeah, (laughs) because you can't help but think outside of it. Just a few things I wanted to ask you. Obviously, we've just come through a global pandemic, um, which is probably still around and so forth with COVID. Um, We've we've spoken to a few people. Um, One of the the people that we interviewed, actually a Ugandan lady, she married to a Nigerian um, gentleman. They own Kunda uh, Kids. Um, And they basically, started their business during COVID you know um, and they, it basically flourished like literally this this African Kings and Queens series is being given to all these kids around the world which is fantastic and they're self-published self-authored yeah. all of that um, and then also another gentleman that we spoke to Theo Beloy he during COVID um, he has a sneaker business in South Africa which is doing extremely well and during COVID they basically were able to shift and be able to increase and, and to do a lot better with their profits so I'm curious um, from the farming sector because we have haven't spoken to anybody in agriculture at all. Well, how did COVID affect the business? Ah, so COVID, it was tricky. It was tricky mm. in, in, in Uganda, for instance, because mm. initially when they had the first lockdown, it was mm. like full-on lockdown. So there's no movement. And then as it started to shift, so like, okay, farmers can do this, farmers can move at these times. Mm. So like the transportation, the business became a headache. So like moving goods from here to there was a headache. And because the markets were not open, so like the public markets where we were doing most of our trading wasn't open, mm. it became quite hard to like sell produce, especially when you're trying to mm. sell in bulk. And then borders are closed, so like a lot of the, the bulk buyers would buy to like export to like Sudan or to neighboring countries. So that became tricky. However, as it progressed, it, it relaxed a little bit. And because people were spending a lot more time at home, mm-hmm. there was like more purchasing of, you know, household products. So like you, our in-person business became a bit better. So like the supplying, you know, individual clients were like, like the kind of junior type client base where it's like, okay, household, they're ordering five kgs a week mm-hmm. was starting to like stabilize. And because the bulk people were not buying the hotels, uh, the restaurants were all closed, that was tricky. Mm. But on, on, on the other side, it allowed us to start addressing other issues that were like underlying in, the, in, the, in this NGO space. So we've been doing a lot of work with the refugee settlements and um, doing our programs in, you know, in refugee camps. And one of the things that, that became evident was mental health which is one of it's just like not addressed in 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 Africa and mm, mm. and because you have families who are now in lockdown being like held in in a small house and you can't really leave no one's making money that problem started to like grow with mm. the women that we're working with and sometimes you'll find that you you you're trapped in the house with the oppressor so let's say someone has <laughs> been sexually abused 
they're stuck in the house with the person who's been abusing them. Mm-hmm. And because they can't go anywhere else, it's becoming a, an issue. So, like, we were able to develop uh, a mental health curriculum, which we've been testing in two refugee settlements. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it's shown, like, very positive results. You know, that, that dialogue, opening that chain of dialogue between people in these African communities where usually this type of conversation is just suppressed has been like a mind shift and and I'm seeing it with more than just beneficiaries of of our programs but I see it with the staff I see it with you know people in general mental health is becoming a, an issue that people are starting to to talk about more openly so yeah financially it was difficult but it allowed us to look at other areas that were currently not being addressed and we hope to like scale this mental health curriculum into other programs so we're working with uh, the UNDP we're working with FAO in in refugee camps and we should be partnering with AFSI and potentially with USA to like try and scale this 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 part of the curriculum with everything that you guys are doing at CAD Africa, I really am like the heart of it is really in the right place. So that's really awesome. With regards to climate change, climate change is, is, is you know, for the longest time um, within the continent, um, there was this whole idea that, you know, that thing about climate change was always like, oh, people are like discussing it. They're busy debating it over there. Like, how is it affecting me? Like, oh, that kind of thing. But now we're feeling the impact. I know that when I was um, just before I left Ghana um, for holiday, I literally was cold. I was just like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's never felt like this. But now yeah. I can imagine how much even more climate change affects you in the agriculture sector. Um, what are yeah. some of the things that you've seen with regards to climate change, especially because already you're not in control of the, of the, of the day-to-day temperatures. You just pray yeah. that God is going to keep the seasons going as they are. But now with climate change, what are the, some of the biggest dynamics that you've seen, some of the biggest changes? How's it impacted the agriculture sector um, for, for you guys in Uganda? So, yeah, that's it's a huge, huge issue. Like, even I, I was one of those guys, like, when people talked about climate change, like, you kind of like, yeah, you know it's happening, but you, like, roll your eyes in, in the sense of, like, okay, get out of, get out of here, Greta, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but as, as, as someone in agriculture, you start to realize that, like, the rainy seasons either get extra long, which is not good. It's hazardous to crops because things drown. <laughs> Just yeah. the same way, like... For river floods, animals on the side will, will end up drowning. Your crops rot in the ground, and then the dry seasons are long and, and unpredictable. So, like, we farmers in rural settings rely so heavily on that, you know, pattern. That mm. It's going to start raining in March. Mm. It's going to stop raining, so we know we're going to harvest. And it'll happen so, like, sporadically. Like, it'll rain earlier, so people will plant, expecting that the rainy season has started early. Then it just goes dry for, like three months, and then the rainy season starts later. So it's like the unpredictability of the weather has become a huge problem for farmers Mm. um, in in Uganda. Mm. And we encourage people to, like, do, like, water harvesting, and if you can, figure out how to irrigate your farm. But those things are are very costly. So it's Mm. it's one of those discussions that needs to be had with, with governments on how we can, like, subsidize the cost of certain agricultural products. Or, like, if we're trying to mechanize farming, how do we go ahead and do this so that the the most impoverished farmers are able to to benefit from it? Mm. And, like... What are the what are the plans for like you know tree planting and what what initiatives are being taken to like ensure that land 
the erosion and things that happen with the flooding are not affecting the farmers. So it's like the conversation is real, man. It's, mm. You ask any farmer out there now and they're just like, man, they don't even know what to do now. Mm. It's, it's deterring people from going into agriculture, mm. to be honest. With all the uncertainty here, yeah. I guess policies have to be made, like changes have to be made as quick as possible. And also, like you're saying, um, governments need to get involved so that they can try and mitigate some of the factors of climate change so that, you know, agriculture can still continue to develop. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And now just another thing, right, um, just as we wrap up the interview, I'm very curious about the ecosystem of farming. I'm going to use Theo Boloyi for an example from Batu Sneakers. Um, one of the things in his business is that they basically own the whole end-to-end business. So the stores where the sneakers are sold are his, um, or the yeah. other companies, the the trucks, you know, everything, the entire ecosystem is under one umbrella, which has been one of the ways that they've been able to really grow this kind of like amazing business. For farming, what is the ecosystem like? And what are, what are parts of farming that people perhaps never thought that there are opportunities? Break down the ecosystem of farming. No, it's, it's actually, it's interesting because there are opportunities in certain areas. So like I've seen people who've come in and started like creating organic fertilizer based on the waste that is produced by, let's say, guys who are doing animal husbandry. So mm-hmm. cattle farmers in Fort Porto, for instance, who would initially just give away the manure. Started mm-hmm. like When we started doing like commercial farming, we'd be like getting trucks of manure from a, cow, a pig farmer or a cow farmer or a chicken farmer, and then they realize, oh, my goodness, wait a minute. These guys are coming every week to pick this up. Let me charge for it. So it like creates this thing of like, oh, there's a business opportunity there. So that is something I've seen happening. The the transportation uh, industry is also a big spot. Like people can make a lot of money in because people who own trucks are the ones who come up country, they pick up the goods and they transport them. In fact, that's one of the things I did early on when I started farming was I would buy onions in bulk in the, in the hills of uh, Port Porto. And then transport them down. So like I'd rent the trucks and transport the onions and, and flip them in Kampala. Initially becoming a trader of sorts, mm. which is one thing I despise now. But uh, that, that the, the trader aspect is there. And then you have like uh, on the other end is like the exporters of, of, of produce. So I've seen there's like, there's, they're like little hubs. I, it's hard to find someone who has that entire ecosystem like on their own, unless it's like tea farmers or sugarcane plantations. The Mokwanos, uh, Katepati, those guys who've been there and established. Mm. I think that with the farmers in, in countries like Uganda, where it's predominantly smallhold farmers, mm. the the op- the biggest opportunity is in like creating these cooperatives of farmers so that you work with them to like unionize their produce and, and sell it at, the, at, at a price point that's beneficial for both parties. So like you can negotiate with the companies that buy the sugar cane for sugar and have a group of farmers in in one region who are growing something like maize, which is not benefiting them, start growing sugar cane. There's an opportunity there that I see that is just being missed. So yeah, it's, they're little bubbles and pockets, but it's hard to like put everything together, especially because with so many different types of crops and so many different like regions growing certain things, it's, if you don't have an end market, it, it becomes tricky. Yeah. But yeah, there is opportunity though. 
two final mm-hmm. questions. Uh, the first question is around um, fair trade and, and trading. You alluded to the beginning about how when it came to you guys selling your tomatoes before they became tomato paste and <laughs> tomato jam yeah. and all, all of that stuff. You know, you that's the first time that you realized that there was, you know, there was a lot of people will come in and they will be able to set the price, you know? Yeah. So when it came to this kind of thing, like what, what are the biggest learn- lessons that you learned um, that you and your wife learned when it came to trading and, and how do you ensure as far as possible with CAD Africa, what you're doing with the ladies? Yeah, I think the main issue I've seen is like, there's no like real regulation on pricing. Mm-hmm. So like pricing is determined by someone in Kampala. It, mm. I don't know who it is, but there's some guy on Monday morning, he wakes up and says, okay, today I'm buying it. it basically, the biggest buyer is the one who's going to d- determine the price. And mm. like with things like fuel prices going up, it all of a sudden it affects everything else. And in Uganda, when fuel prices go up, they don't come down. <laughs> this is the craziest <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's like, I remember like a few years ago, it went from like 2,500 to 3,000. 500 and it literally stayed there till the pandemic and now it's at like 6,000 yeah. and I don't see it coming down. <laughs> so like whoever is, whoever is buying the produce and like ship, sending trucks up country is like, oh, fuel, fuel. Uh, now they're, they've said, okay, we're buying this at this price. And because there's no government regulation on price fixing for agricultural crops, it creates a problem for the smallholder farmers. So the farmers were being, you know, short-ended on that side. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, I remember driving, I don't know if it's this, I, honestly, I can't even remember if this was in a dream or a real thing that yeah. I saw. And I was driving and I saw like a gas station market. And basically, you know, on the gas station, it says like diesel, mm. uh, petroleum, whatever, and it shows the prices. Mm. I saw something like that in a marketplace and it was like potatoes. And the price would change every day depending wow. on what the market has decided. And I think that kind of regulation needs to be enforced across the board. So like farmers come knowing that, okay, today I'm selling potatoes at 2000 tomorrow uh, beans are going to be this price. And that allows them to just dictate what happens. Mm Because when the trader comes, don't tell me about your fuel prices. If you want Mm -hmm. the food, this is how much it costs you. So price regulation is a huge thing. It's a Mm -hmm. huge problem. Sure. And yeah, that's where the government needs to to, to step in. Just, yeah, yeah, step in and and help. And finally, I just wanted to touch on this with you and just to get your thoughts around this, around the fact that Africa should be the world's food basket. Now, I remember during COVID being based in Ghana that food prices were really skyrocketing. And one of the the things that people were talking about and what was going around was the fact that a lot of the food was being imported. And I thought to myself, wow, as Africans, I had always thought that a lot of the food was being locally produced so that we were able to sustain ourselves. Yeah, it's it. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and now when you look at what's been going on with the Ukraine war, with the devastation of it, one of the other side effects of it has been the fact that, that, that things like wheat have become really expensive and that is affecting the African continent quite a lot. And I keep thinking to myself, we surely should be able to sustain ourselves, no? Yeah, because if, if we mechanize the, the farming, we have mm-hmm. everything we need to actually grow this, yeah. this wheat that is coming from Ukraine. We mm-hmm. have th- these thousands of acres and we just need to like mechanize it to get the, the right tractors, the right harvesters, everything doing this. We could be doing that, what Ukraine is doing. Because you, you go to a farm there and you're like, I'll visit farms in, in the States and I'll be like, oh my God, they only have two workers here. Yeah. <laughs> because everything is just like, and I don't want to put people out of work, but then 
when it comes to like the government's role in how we export and import produce, they have the opportunity to actually spend money on like building out their government farms to a point that they can create, you know, like a stockpile. They can stockpile for, for situations like this where wheat is now being held from Ukraine or whatever. Mm. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't want to blame the government for everything. I feel like young people should also take the initiative to like start looking at agriculture as a business and mo- instead of like this thing that peasants do. And 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 if they view it as that, they can start changing their own you know narrative of how they grow their crops. And it's something that is hard to to, to explain to someone who sees the opportunity of riding a border border as quick cash. It's hard to like change their mindset and say. Oh no! You can wait six months to harvest, and then potentially make this this type of money when you know the weather changes on a day to day basis, mm. fertilizers, pests. That you have all sorts of problems that you don't think about as a non farmer. So when you're trying to tell young people that you should do this, and they're like, "Hey, chief, I'm not interested." Yeah. It's, it's it's hard to to make that shift. But the government really should be promoting this type of initiative. Mm-hmm. And if they were doing that, you'd find a lot more engagement with young people and people in agriculture. Yeah, I guess it's, it really is also about educating people and knowing what the opportunities are, you know. Yeah. I never even knew that vanilla farming was a thing in Uganda, and I think that that's fantastic. I just need yo, to get a yo. vanilla farm and be like, I own a vanilla farm in Western Uganda. <laughs> vanilla is, is literally like gold. That stuff is so expensive. And it's like, it, it takes some time when you're done to like, just research vanilla. It's literally, it's like, I don't, again, I don't want to have to refer to it as a drug trade, but that's the kind of violence you're seeing in the vanilla farming industry, where like people are like raiding farms and killing for vanilla because it's so expensive. It's insane. Mm. What makes it expensive? I don't know. I think it's just hard to find. It's like, Mm. there was one time the market crashed in like Madagascar because they did like a huge, they mass produced and then like flooded the market and it created the like a supply and demand issue. But right now, from what I hear when I speak to Lulu from Dali, it's that vanilla, it's hot. It's hot right now. In fact, I was in Atlanta the other day and a colleague came in from from Tanzania and one of my other friends was like, yo, did you bring my thing? And I, I was like wondering what it was. And she whipped out this little bag of vanilla, like just the, like oh raw gosh. vanilla. And I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> oh that gosh. was your request from Tanzania. So yeah, no, it's, it's it's gold. This is quite literally going to be my life goal. Get get back to me in two years. You'll be surprised. <laughs> Your vanilla farming. I'm be telling like, you, yes, you've made it. Yeah. Yeah. But Eric Kaduru, thank you so much. And also, you know, to your wife, Rebecca, just for the work that you guys are doing. It's incredible. I love everything about what you guys are doing at CAD Africa, how you're impacting change, the fact that you think about the community and literally making solutions for the community and empowering the community and getting everybody involved. And also just enlightening us about um, agriculture, what opportunities are there and sharing some of your stories, like with the tomatoes. I'm never going to forget. <laughs> I'm never going to forget that. But yeah, you know, best of luck. And we really look forward to just seeing how far you guys actually take this. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers, man. Thanks so much for having us. And yeah, anytime.
thanks for tuning into this episode of the Africa Whisperer. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with my esteemed guest. Please, if you want to find out anything more about the podcast, go to theafricawhisperer.com where you can find out about the team that helps put this production together, my amazing guests that we have each and every week, as well as send any feedback that you might have by emailing hello at theafricawhisperer.com. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter as Lee Kasumba. Catch you next time. Thanks.